When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway. Oh, deep sea fishing, bullfighting, uh, other macho pursuits, drinking, killing, four wives, dying, manly men. Hello again, and welcome to episode 82 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast based on Billy Joel's pop opus that set the syllabus to school us on the headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Hemingway. Ah, so looking at the chronology of this, Katie. Yes. This must be the very end of Ernest Hemingway, the great writer who is found dead of a shotgun wound in 1961. He had been a totemic writer. Anything I know about him has just been gleaned through osmosis in the culture. All I knew was that just kind of a caricature of him. Like he was a man's man. He's kind of a cartoon of masculinity. He celebrated manly man pursuits <laughs> like war, bullfights, hunting, killing. Rawr. And so then I picked up his first big novel that made a splash, The Sun Also Rises. And of course, found out that he was much more nuanced than I was led to believe and that he explores, yes, masculinity, but vulnerability and needs, unmet needs, melancholy, loss, all that kind of thing. So I'm now excited about getting into the meat of the man. Yeah, and I found him, Katie, because he followed a path that lots would follow after him. He became a journalist, first of all, and then he became a novelist. So all subsequent male journalists have had the same fantasy. As a writer, you can see all the people he's influenced, even as you're going back to the source material. Right, right. But Katie, enough of what you and I know about Ernest Hemingway. It's time to introduce our learned guest, who this week is Dr. Linda Patterson-Miller, Distinguished Professor at Penn State Abington. She has written a number of books about Ernest Hemingway and his scene. Welcome, Linda. Happy to be here. So where should we start with Hemingway? It almost feels like rather than starting at the beginning of his life, we need to talk about his style. Yeah. We, we need to work out why he is as famous today as he was in his pomp. Well, I think you hit at an important issue early on in noting he's known primarily for this image of him as opposed to his writing itself because a lot of people actually haven't read Hemingway. They think they've read him. They've just read the idea of Hemingway as he came across in popular culture. And that was really always a problem for Hemingway because he became really trapped in that image of the macho guy. Uh, his writing style was transformative. That's why I think it's so interesting that he's included as a name in this wonderful song, We Didn't Start the Fire, because Hemingway was one of the first radicals in terms of transforming the way that people 
right. He was very aware of the dogma of the day and that so much writing was just using euphemistic language and really not getting to the core of what it really means to be human. You mentioned the vulnerability and the, the sense that he really understood the interior workings of people. And so in his writing, he wanted to get inside. And that's the key to understanding Hemingway. He said that seven-eighths should be left out. He kind of articulated his iceberg theory of writing, that what you leave out is more important than what you put in. But he qualified that. He said, but it's really important that the writer knows what he's leaving out. And if the writer knows what he's leaving out, the reader will feel it more than understand it. And that's key, feeling it more than understanding it. I want to go back to his beginning. He had, for somebody who created a style that was so devoid of ornamentation and so lean and mean, he had quite a complex and multi-layered family, I guess, as we all do. And I'm wondering if you can talk about his domineering parents, the family dynamic. There was religious pressure. His mother was a little bit of a gender bender there, dressing him and one of his sisters as twins. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, he grew up in Oak Park, a suburb of Chicago. His parents were very religious, and they were extremely upset when his first book, In Our Time, a collection of short stories came out, um, and then Sentinels Arises. And his mother said to him, can't you write something beautiful? And he responded to her, he said, you can't write about the beautiful without showing the ugly as well. It wasn't a bad childhood. He spent his summers in Michigan, and that was crucial to him as a writer. His family, the year Hemingway was born, had bought property in Upper Michigan, and they built a cabin there. The cabin is still there, and it was there that Hemingway really discovered himself. It was like the, the way that he captures that early life in America in his early writing is what really made Hemingway in his Nick Adams stories that show autobiographical Nick Adams in that Michigan country and the purity of that. Ah, oh, that all makes sense. Then what happens? He left home early. He didn't go to college. He graduated from high school and went to Kansas City and worked for the newspapers for just a few months before enlisting in World War I. And it was in Kansas City that he began to recognize uh, the importance of really cutting the words. He wrote his father, um, Dear Old Pop, he said, I've had a lot of valuable experience and have done some good work and have hit it pretty blame hard. And now I am bushed, so bushed that I can't sleep nights, that my eyes get woozy. I'm not telling you this because I think I'm any star or anything of the kind, but just so you see the situation. Katie, this early part of his life reminds me of something that happened to me at journalism college at the age, <laughs> at the age of 21. What, you, were, you were lauded as an early genius? Absolutely not. Um, but we had a, a tutor who had... One way of telling us to write our copy is Welshman. Everything was tight and bright, boys. I want it tight and bright. And that is pretty much the way that I think journalism has been forever because um, Hemingway sounds like he was heavily influenced by the style guide for his first newspaper, which was the Kansas City Star. This is what the style guide says. Use short sentences. Use short first paragraphs. Use vigorous English. Be positive, not negative. 
And that almost feels like everything Hemingway does yes. in one little paragraph. Well, it seems like he's incorporated that style guide. But also, Linda, when you were reading snippets of those letters to his dad, he has a tremendous confidence as an 18-year-old where he uses idiomatic expressions and very conversational sentence structure in his writing. And so when you're reading it, it sounds like somebody just having a conversation with somebody else. And the fact that he doesn't have any kind of what you would imagine would be a certain formality of a son writing to his dad, it seems like he he carries off this confidence. I'm wondering when he was in the war, what was his injury? And do you think that this was something that deepened him as a writer, this experience of being in war? Absolutely. I mean, he had only been over there for one month when he got wounded. He was serving in the American Ambulance Corps and basically delivering supplies to troops in the trenches. And he was delivering supplies to the troops and got hit with shrapnel fire. And he was seriously wounded and taken to Milan where hospitals were created out of apartment buildings and whatever. It was there that he met the nurse Agnes von Kurowski. And in a way, I would argue that actually his experience with Agnes von Kurowski was more influential on Hemingway's life and writing than his actual war experiences. In reality, he didn't see a whole lot of direct fighting. Nonetheless, the war did come into his writing. He writes several Nick Adams stories, one, Now I Lay Me. And in that story, Now I Lay Me, he describes Nick Adams directly after his wounding and how he's really troubled emotionally, and he tries to force himself to think back strategically in terms of the names of rivers that I've fished in. I'll name the names of girlfriends I've had, trying to control the uncontrollable of that emotional reality. So he was impacted definitely by the the whole wartime experience, and certainly it got him over to Europe too, and it was after coming back to America that he decided he wanted to go rejoin that life in Europe. And that's when we start the whole explosive expatriate modernist uh, community in Paris in the 1920s. And certainly Hemingway was at the center of that. And of course, uh, this is the so-called lost generation, as Gertrude Stein dubbed it. And she said that Paris was the place where the 20th century was. So he was right in the bullseye of all of the action. Picasso's there, F. Scott Fitzgerald's there. You know, people are kicking up their heels, drinking too much and creating the work that defines that era. Yeah, it was was an amazing time. I don't think there's been anything like it sense, actually. It was absolutely explosive and transformative. The artists said that there was creative activity in the air. It was the joining together of all the different art forms, the ballet, jazz, painting, writing. These artists would gather in the cafes, and there was this constant interchange of involvement. And they gathered in the studios, and certainly very famously Gertrude Stein's salon studio, where Hemingway came into that salon very early in his introduction to Paris in the 20s. And it was very influential. He kind of learned from her the minimalism and the use of repetition. Tell it as it is, show it as it is, these modernist artists were saying. But the community there was um, extraordinary. And 
in later life, many of those artists talked about that and looked back at it. The poet Archibald MacLeish, who was there as part of that community, said um, it was like the telescoped life, so intensive within just a couple of years' time. And that carried forward into the future. And was part of the style of all these artists, whether they're writers or painters or poets, was one of the reasons for this style, Linda, that conflict which had come before, which had devastated Europe? Because it feels like it was almost an excuse or a reason for everyone to start again because all the old certainties had been blown away. You're absolutely right. That's huge, I think, in the art of the day because... At the heart of the art, and certainly at the heart of Hemingway's art, is um, a compelling question. What do you believe in? What do you live for? What would you be willing to die for? And these artists were challenging all the old institutional truisms, challenging the idea of God and institutional religion, certainly. Really, the writing of Hemingway is actually very religious. It's really raising these basic questions of what do you commit yourself to? What are you living for? And so that impelled this uh, whole era very um, powerfully. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. As in, we didn't start the fire. So that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savor the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? 
Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I have a question, Linda, about the women in his life, because on the one hand, he's a self-mythologizing blokey bloke who eventually is subsumed by the hype, like he kind of buys into it, certainly his adoring public buy into it. But interestingly, he's attracted to fabulous women. He likes strong, powerful women who, um, as was the fashion of the day, cut their hair short, uh, wear kind of masculine-styled clothes. So he's not one of these powerful guys who likes a bimbo, some arm candy. Can you tell us about the first of his four wives and their life together in Paris? Well, he was married to Hadley Richardson, And I think it was his most important relationship, and it influenced all of his later life and his later writing. He and Hadley married in 1921 and went over to Paris in the fall of 1921. If you read Hemingway's wonderful memoir, A Movable Feast, it's really a tribute to Hadley and to this beautifully romantic, idyllic life lived during those tumultuous years in Paris. And there's a great sense of intimacy that he communicates about that relationship. And one of the key things in terms of Hemingway and his women is that while he was married to Hadley, the predatory woman Pauline Pfeiffer, the second woman he ends up marrying, comes into their life, in a way moves in with Hadley and Hemingway. Hadley was very generous and very lovely. She was lovely throughout her whole life. And Hemingway acknowledged that throughout his whole life. And what a devastating mistake he had made in leaving Hadley. Oh, now I'm getting the whole picture. Hadley told Pauline and Hemingway that she would not give the divorce unless they separated for a couple of months. During that period of separation, Hemingway probably went back to Hadley and said, this is such a mistake. Please, please forgive me. Please take me back. And she said, sorry, it's too late. And she had already met the Paul Maurer, who became her second husband and, and happy marriage for, the, for her whole life. But that theme of betrayal is huge in Hemingway's art throughout, and it relates to his women. And I think that he never forgave himself for leaving Hadley. Linda, it's very touching to read his writing about his life with Hadley, because at the time, I think he realized a little bit how how good he had it. But certainly, you know, years later, decades later, looking back on it, he realized how special it was and what a team they were. And then interestingly, by the time he's with Pauline and she's kind of bankrolling their whole lifestyle, in a way, he's almost a, a, a bot husband, even though uh, she is devoting herself to his art and his life. And then I guess the thanks she gets is that he runs off with Martha Gellhorn. I personally feel that the the marriage with Pauline, in a way, was doomed from the start. Uh, there's an unpublished uh, snippet of a manuscript in the Kennedy Library where Hemingway's papers are held. And 
it describes a character guy meeting the boat that Pauline is coming on from the States to rejoin with Hemingway and, and then to um, get married. And the character just feels, when he sees her, it's like a sinking of his heart. Like, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? So I think that Hemingway, um, when he first saw Pauline coming back, I think the relationship was in some ways troubled from the start. And Hemingway continued to search. He was very much obviously attracted to powerful women. Martha Gellhorn was a strong writer in her own right. She came to really detest Hemingway, actually, as someone who was trying to control her and diminish her in a way, as a writer, and himself assuming a stronger role um, in the writing. Yes, it's interesting because Martha Gellhorn was an established war correspondent, and then there was a point where she was trying to entice him to join her over in Europe to cover World War II, and he did it eventually by stealing her commission from Collier's magazine and, and filing his copy first. So he kind of rained on her parade. Let's face it, Hemingway was, was very much a showman, and I think abused Martha in that sense. He was furious when he learned that she was able to get on board a boat to Normandy, to D-Day. So there was a real competitiveness there, definitely. Of all the macho things that Hemingway does, Linda, and there are loads from the sort of the early 1920s where he leaves Paris and goes to Pamplona to watch the bull running, when he goes to uh, safari in Africa in the early 30s, when he starts uh, sailing in the Caribbean in his boat, all these very macho things he does. But I wonder how important in that pre-Second World War period is the death of his father. I think the death of his father is huge. <laughs> it's huge. That underlying darkness runs through all his early stories. One story, uh, The Three-Day Blow, ends with the line where Nick and his friend Bill um, are leaving the cottage and going down the hill. And they say, let's go down into the swamp where Bill's father is down in the swamp with the gun. And there's just this underlying darkness throughout Hemingway's art that gives it its power, I think, its resonance. And I think it has a lot to do with his father's suicide. He felt, and again, it ties into that theme of betrayal. He felt that his father betrayed him in killing himself. And he also has a contempt for his father. He comes around by the end of his life as he himself struggles with suicidal ideation. But at the time, he felt that his dad took the coward's way out and he had this fixation on, you know, what was considered brave, what was cowardly. And also this idea that the threat of death hanging over you is the thing that makes you feel fully alive. So he's really struggling with that. I'm interested in this idea that Hemingway gradually became, uh, first he elevated his persona with his branding of him as this hyper-masculine hero, but then he was increasingly hemmed in by it, and it seems like others were seduced by it. People wanted to have a piece of the old Ernest Hemingway, have a drink with him, with the genius, and then he himself seems like he couldn't even break out of it, to the extent that um, there was that crazy caper where he convinced the U.S. government to outfit his fishing boat, Pilar, with guns and ammo so that he could hunt German submarines off of Cuba. I mean, was he a total fantasist by this time? I think definitely he was trapped in that image of, the, of that macho, uh, gunslinging individual. 
And that did, I think, come to diminish his art, actually, because it, it diminished him. I think he got caught in that trap. He was such a public figure early on, and he really couldn't escape that um, public image. Uh, and to be a writer, he, he really needed to, to go to that inner core. And more and more, he couldn't get past that, that outer image that people saw him as. All of this stuff, the bullfighting, for example, really gets at the heart of what Hemingway was recognizing even early on in terms of the kinds of sham things we do as people, to, as cover-ups. Um, when he's writing about bullfighting, for example, in Sun Also Rises, which you just reread, a key part of that is to see what was Hemingway communicating about bullfighting there. He wanted... Jake Barnes wanted Brett to see the bullfighters. And there's this whole long passage where he's with Brett at the bullfight and the woman he loved in the novel, yes, she saw the way the bullfighters had a purity of form. She saw the way, she saw the way, she saw the way. Because Jake Barnes is really trying to lead Brett Ashley to have herself, to, to not be caught in the image of herself that defined her in the eyes of those surrounding her, the guys who wanted to dance around her. They didn't want to go into her as a human. And the bullfighting, um, I think it's a wonderful image of all of Hemingway's art in that he was really talking in all of his art about vulnerability and exposure. How much do you expose your true inner self and how do you get to that true inner self? And so he castigated the bullfighters who were just simulating the idea of danger. And you risk death. And it's really a wonderful metaphor for relationships in Hemingway's art. The ability to, to make yourself vulnerable in a relationship in order to get deep inside. And so people tend to look at that exterior stuff with Hemingway. So the, all the bullfighting, the horrible idea of that, the killing of the animal, the brutality. And yet, it's really not about that. It's about how do you get beyond that brutality to the inner core where the real stuff is? Why is it that Hemingway becomes so well known to the general public in the States outside of literary circles? Are his books, Linda, selling vast numbers of copies? Is it his image or is it a combination of the two? It's probably a combination of the two. And that's a question that I think about often. You know, how do you explain that Hemingway is such an iconic figure? He was doing something so transformative with writing style that that became recognized. It was shocking. And that was behind all the modernist art, really, the shock of the new and the shock of Hemingway's early style with its minimalism really captured the public, I think. And they were intrigued by Hemingway. But then, of course, his life took over, too, and it became very romanticized, the life that he lived in all these different places and the people he interacted with, um, stars and so forth. So he became a kind of a public persona. And that became his undoing, really, because he couldn't, he really couldn't get, get past that. But he was a handsome, he was a really handsome guy. I have a poster in my office that hangs on the wall. It's a picture of Hemingway. And a young writing student of mine was sitting there. We were talking about her paper, but she's looking up at this poster. <laughs> And she finally just said, who is that? Who is that? And I said, well, that's <laughs> Hemingway. Um, so he was a very captivating presence. He, 
it's hard to describe. Certain people have that, don't they, where they come into a room and they take over the room. And that was Hemingway. It was magnetic. And um, it was hard to fight against that. I mean, the one hand, he would write in his letters that he got sick of all the guests. And at the same time, he seemed to invite that populace in. It seemed to feed his sense of self. So I'm looking at a photograph of Ernest Hemingway, probably the passport picture you're describing, and he has a very clear, smooth brow. There's something dancing in his eyes. You know, there's always, and I've seen uh, sort of home movies and film clips of him, and he definitely has twinkling, dancing eyes. He has a lovely smile. He's got dimples. He's got a firm jaw. And of course, he's powerfully built. He's a big man. Um, so he's commanding. But there is something kind of disarmingly boyish about him at the same time, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think that boyish quality stayed with him and began to do him in, actually, because he kind of lived out that boyishness and the kind of um, showing off behavior. It, during World War II, when he finally did go over there, he really loved, you know, having the guns and acting out as a kind of quasi-soldier. That boyishness, I think, you, you hit on something that I think is very important. It, it's a quality that carries over into his art, that kind of youth and innocence that keeps getting kind of undercut by the reality, the more harsh reality. So when we get towards the end, Linda, we get a sense of a man who is diminished in his own eyes as much as anyone else's eyes. He has become something of a cliché of himself. And we've talked about how his father commits suicide. Hemingway's only 61. His suicide, when it comes, is initially reported as an accident. But to those around him, it doesn't sound like it comes as a surprise. Yeah, he'd been treated at the Mayo Clinic. And in those last couple of years, it was, I think, recognised that he was experiencing serious depression. And a scholar just wrote a book called Hemingway's Brain, and he analyzed the impact of Hemingway on the wounds that he'd suffered. He probably had a concussion in the war. He had several accidents um, in succession. He had a couple of plane accidents where he and Mary Hemingway survived a couple of plane crashes, but he had to use his head to bash open the window. So it was quite clear that he was really suffering physically and mentally from that, these wounds and that it impacted his whole psychological state. And so I think people were trying to protect him, but also get him treated for this sickness. But I think um, there was worry that he was thinking about suicide. And I think, as you said earlier, that he was aware of suicide throughout his whole life. He can't get past the idea that it is a betrayal. He said his father betrayed everyone and himself by killing himself. But I think Hemingway saw himself in that same venue. And it was tragic when he was getting the um, award for Old Man in the Sea. And you see a recording of him giving his short speech. He was in Cuba. He was unable to attend the ceremony because of his health. His speech is totally stilted. He has to search for the words. It's really tragic. And at the end of his life, he was not able to articulate all the things in himself that you could not see directly. And that did him in. Linda, tell us about this, this theory that he may have had an illness. There may have been an illness present in the Hemingway family because we've heard about his father killing himself. Hemingway will, will shoot himself. 
His sister Ursula and his brother Lester also commit suicide. There's a theory, isn't there, that they were all suffering from hereditary hemochromatosis. Can you tell us anything more about that? That's been kind of debunked, actually. I think um, some scholars have played with that idea, but I think what's more powerfully prevalent is the impact of some kind of hereditary depression. There was certainly depression throughout his, his family. Certainly his father's suicide, his, one of his sisters committed suicide, uh, his brother committed suicide. The concussions that led to serious brain injury, exacerbated by the excessive drinking, he was an alcoholic. I think that all of that is really the more powerful diagnosis <laughs> of Hemingway. The other is, a bit, I think, a bit of a crackpot theory, but that's controversial. So Ernest Hemingway absolutely captured the world's imagination, quite unusually in his own lifetime. That is not always the case for an artist. Do you think, Linda, that his work holds up today? I do, absolutely. I teach him, and it's very exciting, actually, to see how students respond to his writing. I think particularly today in the very turbulent times that we're living today, his writing reveals to students the importance of not being manipulated by society's expectations, but to really discover who you are and what do you believe in and what do you live for. And he's very teachable. I mean, for a while, uh, it wasn't popular to teach Hemingway because he was viewed during the early feminist movement as being a woman hater. And the reality is, is that you just don't see that in his works. They're very real. And he's not sanitizing them or making them as idealized figures. They're real. And he's showing them in the situations that they're living in, in their lives. And he creates, I think, very powerfully in his early works, especially, that emotional truth of what it means to be human. And Students really, really embrace Hemingway. I think there's a stereotype of Hemingway that prevents people from really, truly reading his work. And if you're just embracing that stereotype, you're just seeing all the exterior demonstrations and not that interior world that is at the heart of Hemingway's writing. And because he found the way to get there, he is a master. He's a master. He's referred to as the father of modern American prose. And I think that's a very apt depiction of him. Well, I don't know about you, Katie, but that has filled my mind with so many new thoughts about Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, I'm excited to read all of his work now, the short stories, the early stuff. And I've just started reading A Movable Feast, Linda. So I'm really excited to get into that one too. Dr. Linda Patterson-Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcasts from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.
our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. I'm actually really moved after that discussion with Linda. I love all that stuff about the metaphor for bullfighting, uh, equating to a relationship, opening your heart, truly making yourself vulnerable, risking death. Something I'm going to be taking into my personal life, I think. (laughs) Do you know what, Katie? It's also reminded me, both the reading we've done before today's episode and everything we've just heard from Linda, he is a truly extraordinary writer. And you can lose that sometimes in the cliches. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was almost a reason why I didn't even want to crack open his work. And wow, now there's so much richness ahead of me. I'm really looking forward to reading his stuff. Talking about richness, Katie, you have been (laughs) philandering with another podcast called .com The Hacking. Yes, it is our tech strand. It lifts the veil on the internet, the World Wide Web. Series 3 is out now, and it's all about the complex world of ransomware, Russian ransomware, and cyber attacks, because in this brave new world, nothing is too small or too big to be digitalized, including acts of war. Russian ransomware attacks have almost doubled in the last year, and at this very moment, cyber criminals are interfering with schools, supermarkets, ordinary mom-and-pop businesses, all in the name of money. And I want to know who, and I want to know why. Katie, it comes as no surprise to me, but it is fascinating and brilliantly done. I doff my cap to you. If you would like to give it a listen, just search for .com The Hacking. That is D-O-T-C-O-M. And if you want more fire, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And we are at Spread That Fire. And next week on We Didn't Start the Fire, it is a really big one, Eichmann. So we'll be going to some dark places, but it should be fascinating. We'll see you then. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.